This is the Rent Festing Podcast with Peter Mastriani. Catherine Cashmore from Anderson and Cashmore International Buyers Agency and also President of Prosper Australia joins the Rent Vesting Podcast. Catherine, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No problems. Catherine, just for our listeners' benefit, can you just give us a bit of an insight into your own background and what it is that you actually do? Sure. I um, have been working as a buyer agent for many, many years in Australia and previous to that I was um, resident in the UK and the US so um, I have experience um, in the real estate market over there but I'm also president of an organization as you said in your introduction called Prosper Australia which is the oldest Henry George organization in the world and it um, advocates for taxation reform. We do a lot in regard to housing policy um, in Australia analyzing um, why we have an unaffordable market over here, how we can create affordability in the market one of the most popular reports that we do in that organization is a report that I write each year called the Speculative Vacancies Report, and it analyzes how many properties are vacant across the greater metropolitan area of Melbourne based on water data usage. Um, and the last report that we did found that there were over 80,000 properties that have been sitting vacant for 12 months or more. That is, properties that aren't using any water or, or are using an abnormally low percentage of water so that there's nobody resident in that property. Mm. And it's a really fascinating study, and so I do a lot of work there as well, which really feeds into the, the buyer advocacy stuff that I do because it gives me a very broad knowledge of the market and what's going on and, and what can obviously affect the housing market. Um, the, other, the other role that I do is I work very closely with my business partner, Philip Anderson, um, analyzing cycles. So we analyze the housing cycle and the land cycle and when we think that the cycle is going to boom and when we think that it's going to bust. And it's a fascinating study and I'm happy to talk about all those subjects with you. Great, because I've got about 20 questions that I would like to ask just from that little introduction there, Catherine. So why is the Australian market unaffordable? The Australian market's unaffordable because housing policy promotes speculation. So we really punish people for working over here. We have very high taxes that fall on income and productivity, and we have a lot of tax incentives for people to invest in real estate. And why we don't want to stop people investing in real estate, the prime reason that people do invest in real estate in Australia is for capital growth rather than rental income. The yields here are extremely low. It's very difficult in Australia to find positive yielding properties, and obviously when you do, you, you compromise on the capital growth. But I think the thing that, that most people are chasing in Australia, and, and it's not just limited to Australia, you find it in international markets as well, is the uplift in primarily the land price. It's the old adage that the classical economists used to say that owners grow rich in their sleep without working or economizing. Yeah. There's something very nice about getting to the end of the year and realizing that your house has increased in value more than you've actually earned in wages. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of the tax policy really discourages us to work. The, the high income taxes, high corporate taxes, payroll taxes, it's a disincentive to work, a disincentive to employ. And not only that, but it cripples the economy. It causes what we call in economics a high dead weight costs, that is high deadweight cost for the economy. So when you're discouraging people to work, you have less people working. When you're discouraging people to employ, there's less employment. And that has numerous rollover effects. So ultimately, the economy isn't as productive or innovative as it could be. And it's not limited to Australia, but you will never, ever have an affordable housing market when you promote housing speculation. And that, that's the prime reason that we, we have this problem in Australia. So what are some simple solutions that could be implemented to improve 
improve the situation that we currently have? I'm so used to politicians saying there's another silver bullet, but there absolutely is a silver bullet. And what you would need to do is you need to change the tax base. You need to start the, the best tax that you can have. And I'm sure that your listeners <laughs> won't like you saying this if they're investors, property investors, but it is a land tax. Because when you tax the land, it actually employs the land into use. So at the moment in Australia, we have a lot of land that's being held by um, idle. In fact, the developers on the outskirts of Melbourne, just as an example, hold up to 14 years of land supply, which they drip feed onto the market to keep prices high. But what you want is you want land to be employed into use. You don't want dilapidated properties. So when you tax the land, not the buildings on the land, you actually encourage people to um, build on the land, which has a role and effect to rent because you build an increase in accommodation, and that's an increase in rental accommodation, which then lowers rents. Um, and it actually lowers land prices as well because when you tax land, it acts very like an owner's corporation fee when you go and buy an apartment. You know you have to pay a fee each year for the facilities in the apartment block, the gym and the lift and so forth. And so you have less money up front to actually pay for the apartment and the bank will take those costs into account, obviously, when they're when they're um, giving you a mortgage. But in, in, we're not advocating that you should just have a land tax, <laughs> a higher land tax along with all the other taxes. The, 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 to buoy productivity and to encourage productivity, the government should be removing other taxes, such as lowering income taxes and lowering, um, uh, you know, getting rid of payroll taxes. And the GST isn't a great tax either. And if you look at any tax review that's been done in Australia or internationally by any economist worth their salt, the Henry Tax Review was, was the last one that we had in Australia, you will see that they all advocate that. That is moving taxes onto broad base, that's land and natural resources, and removing them off income and productivity. That, you would find, would, would start to create a far more affordable market. It would encourage more accommodation to be built. It would improve the standard of accommodation, and I can give you numerous examples in the world where they've actually done this, and they've ended up with very thriving real estate markets. I mean, stamp duty, for example, is a very bad tax <laughs> you, to discourage people to move, um, you know, and, and, and stagnate the market is not a good tax to have. So the removal of stamp duty and the replacement with a broad-based land tax is, is low-hanging fruit. But the problem that the politicians have over here. Um, it's not so much that they don't realize that that would be a good policy to implement. The problem is, is how do they change it when they have breastfed a nation on the notion that they can be rich through housing speculation? And so everybody has bent their investments and, and to that end. And just to change tax policy, it's the actual transition and change in the tax policy, which is the problem. We would be far better off once it's done, but, but the transition is, is difficult. Yeah, it's a bit of bitter pill to swallow, I guess, initially. Very much. Could you give us an example, Catherine, of, of what changes uh, have happened in international markets to, to, to improve sure. to improve affordability situations? Yeah, there, there's no absolutely perfect market that, that has, you know, wonderful tax policy, but yeah. you could look at some somewhere like Texas, for example, in the USA, which in the last housing cycle just didn't boom and therefore it didn't bust. And in 2008, Texas was called the miracle state. It was attracting an increase in population. Its house prices over the course of that cycle had never exceeded three to four times income. And yet, you know, it had very, Texas has, has two things that do that. It has no state income tax. So it encourages a lot of people to move there for work. It had easy regulatory policy. It has high property taxes. So it discourages speculation. 
and it has very liberal supply policy and not only does it build a lot of supply very quickly so it, it caters to the market the home buyer market very quickly but it also builds a lot of infrastructure on the outskirts whenever it builds a new estate it provides all the infrastructure the roads so for most people in texas they never have more than a 30 minute drive to their place of work and it's a very decentralized city i'm talking about houston in particular in Texas, Houston is, is an absolutely great example of a housing market that can work. Other, other countries, for example, Singapore. Singapore has 90% of the population in Singapore are homeowners. The, the uh, public housing is better than the private housing in Singapore. You will pay virtually no income tax in Singapore. Perhaps the most you will pay is 7%. It, was, it, it could be termed the world's greatest startup because when it became independent in 1965, which is around the same time as Israel, in fact, there's been a lot of studies that have compared Singapore with Israel, it was an absolute mess. It had high population growth, rampant poverty. It didn't have enough housing. It had a lot of slum housing. And it didn't take long for a president to get in and to turn that round. And the World Bank was so impressed with what it had done, they commissioned a paper because they couldn't work out how it had done it. But Singapore's tax system is how it did it. It discourages speculation. It encourages work and productivity. There's virtually no unemployment, even though 50% of the workforce are foreign workers. And you won't get housing speculation in Singapore because there's no point speculating on housing because your property tax is high in Singapore. But the quality of the accommodation is very good and the infrastructure is funded through the property taxes, so it has absolutely fantastic infrastructure. And it's a wonderful place to live. And I know a lot of people that have moved over there and, and generally enjoy the cleanliness and the facilities that the country offers. And so these are countries that you, you won't hear about housing crashes. You don't hear about a housing crash in Singapore. You didn't hear about it in Texas, which was isolated in the U.S. really because it hadn't let its, its house prices boom. And that, that's the real key. And that, that's why eventually we will have a crash in Australia, of course, is, is because we do have a boom and bust cycle. So we will have another 1991 we were lucky in 2008 because we were on the upswing of the commodity cycle and we had a surplus to throw at the housing market, which just about saved us from going under. But um, those housing crashes are periodic. They're quite easy to predict and they happen most in the volatile markets. And so where I mean, are Melbourne in the cycle at the moment? We're about halfway through the cycle. We've got about another 10 years to go before you see another 2008. And is that or is that in particular markets? You, you have regional variations in every market. So, for example, the cycle is, is runs like clockwork in the USA, but you can see that Texas protected itself um, to some extent when 2008 hit. So had you bought a house in Texas, you wouldn't have got as much capital gain as you would have done had you bought a house in Florida, but you would have been more protected <laughs> in 2008 than you would have done. So if you're going to speculate on the housing market, then you go into those volatile markets showing a lot of boom. Because they will, but they'll, they'll conversely have the biggest bust at the end of the cycle also. So Florida is, is one of the big boom bust states in the US. LA is another one. Um, the bigger cities, for example, like London and New York cities and, and Israel uh, is, is another good example of that. It's, these are cities that attract a lot of foreign buying. So they attract a lot of foreign income and, and because money floods into them, from overseas when there is a stock market panic, which correlates with the housing cycle to some extent. The stock market always goes before the housing prices drop. But the um, those markets, again, tend to be a little bit more buffered in the downturn of the cycle because they have foreign money coming in. And so that's feeding into real estate prices, into land prices. 
but um, ultimately the, the cycle, the overall cycle is like a big roadmap. So you know when the big bust is going to be, and within that cycle there's usually what we call a mid-cycle downturn. So the housing cycle is 18 years long. The mid-cycle downturn comes around seven to nine years in into that cycle. And Which is where that, we are domestically at this point? Well, we, we will, um, no, we'll hit that. Well, it's, it's actually quite difficult to time the mid-cycle, but we should hit it around 2020. You'll see America hit the mid-cycle. So end of 2019, 2020. And if you think about it in the last cycle, which ran from 1991 to 2008, it was a dot-com bubble crash. So you see a stock market panic, and that pulls investors out of the market. But there's only one way that you can have a housing crash, and that is when people have to sell their housing. And the way that it happens is very simple. It's the tax policies that discourage work, so you have a lot of money and a lot of speculation going into housing, and that erodes the productive sectors of the economy, so people have to move further away from the places of work. If you think about it in Australia, it's a classic donut example, particularly in Melbourne. You know, people have to move further away from work. The higher um, rents you have to pay, the lower money you have for wages, there's less money going into innovation and more money going into speculation. And every, it, it's, it's, um, you know, every study that you do will prove this. So if you look into the, the loan funds in the banks, you'll see that the barely 10% is lent for business. And the rest of it, you know, your good, good 80 to 90% is, is of, of the money that is lent out is for mortgages, is for land or collateral, again, or land is used as collateral for the business loans. So what happens is when the productive sectors of the economy have been eroded away so much, there's a lot of speculation going on in the market. At the end of the cycle, always you will see interest rates get ramped up, just as they did in 2007. If listeners think back to what was happening to lending rates at that point, were around nine, ten percent in some instances and the RBA every time they met they seemed to put interest rates up and at one point they went up one percent and there was a big gasp. And of course it just gets to that breaking point. The productive sectors of the economy have been eroded away, interest rates go up. And it happens suddenly. But the housing crash can only happen when people have to sell. When a flood of stock comes onto the market, the prices drop below the loan funds in the bank. That causes a financial crisis. You typically get a bank run like you did with Northern Rock. And it works like clockwork. And anybody that wants to understand how the housing cycle works, um, my partner, Philip Anderson, has written a book called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. You can get it on Amazon. It's the best book you can read. It will go through the historical cycles in housing. It will show you how it happens. And it will also show you a clock at the end so that you can recognize it yourself. So we will be looking for a peak around 2026. In America, Australia sometimes runs a bit later, and and I suppose it's important for me to say at this point is it's not it, although they're getting more synchronised now. So the Western any any country that has an open banking system, you know, Western banking system kind of slots in with that cycle. China is out of it. China has its own cycle because it still has a closed banking system. So the Asian countries, and obviously policy changes it. So in China, you can't own the land. We're talking about markets where you have a lot of speculation. Europe is a little bit different because you're subject to the euro. So, you know, they, they're, they're subject to that a little bit and they haven't really recovered. I mean, Spain hasn't recovered from 2008 and I was Italy and places like that. So, What's your opinion on APRA's intervention in, in the marketplace? Has this been a good thing in, in, in terms of providing some added protection or buffer or, or is it going to eventually work against us? Well, I, I just missed the beginning of that. What was what, sorry? What, what, APRA's intervention in, in the market. What, what, oh, APRA, what yeah. Is this a, has it been a positive or is it a negative? Oh, 
ultimately, anything that reduces speculation in the market, reduces the volatility of house prices, is a, is a positive thing because an economy that encourages speculation will never, ever be a successful economy. It will be successful for the people that are in the game. It will be successful for the landowners. It will be successful for the for the minerals, you know, all of our money from the the um, mining boom, you know, generally went overseas. But it's not successful for a general and thriving economy, which is why you're seeing an increase in homelessness. So any any policy that is implemented to reduce speculation is a good thing. But the, it won't change the housing cycle. And that's been study after study has shown that banking regulations aren't on their own successful in stopping speculation within the housing market. And the banks themselves and the RBA would know this. When you've gone so far down the road and house prices, and I should stop saying house prices because it's really the land prices that we're talking about, the locational value of land. When land prices are so high and you've gone that far down the road, to turn that around and say, well, you know, we're now worried, we want to slow the housing market down is one thing. But ultimately to stop, you know, you can't allow land prices to drop very far before you start risking having a financial crisis because you're, you know, you, you, the land has been used for collateral for the loans and so you don't want the land prices to, to drop, to go underwater, even if it's just on paper underwater. Yeah. And any, 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 this is the problem with government and I have had a lot of conversations through the, the role that I do at Prosper. I'm always meeting with politicians and policymakers on housing and they will tell you privately that there is absolutely no way that they are going to allow a financial crisis to happen on their watch and they are not going to allow house prices to drop. And that's why you see the funny quotes that come through from uh, Tony Abbott when he was in government of, well, you know, we don't really want house prices to drop. We just want them to slow down a bit or, well, look, the best way to get into the market is, is get a good job or we'll just build more accommodation. Yeah. They're the only things that they can say because actually the best way to get people into the housing market is to lower land prices. It's the only way. Yeah. You have to lower them by about 50%. Yeah. And the only way you'll do that without causing a financial crisis is to, is to remove taxes of productivity and income yeah. so that people get very motivated to work and you kind of buffer in the economy that way. But it, it, the transition is very hard and that's why the best time to do the transition is at the bottom of the housing cycle, um, not at this point in the housing cycle. Rentvesting.com.au is proudly in partnership with Loans Only, Australia's leading investment lending specialists. Visit them at loansonly.com.au. Catherine, considering your experience and, and your expertise, what, what's your general investment philosophy and uh, what would you suggest would be a, a sound strategy or, or a suggestion on a pathway to, to mitigate against you know, possible I don't know, disastrous results at some point in time in the future. You know, what, what would you yeah. be doing to, to perhaps ring fence your, your assets or your portfolio? First of all, tax policy dictates that the way you grow wealthy, your wealth, is to invest in housing. You have to be a very good stock market operator to get the same gains over the cycle that you, you would get investing in housing. And you have to diversify your portfolio. So obviously you can't build a portfolio just negatively geared properties because you're going to go broke very quickly from doing it that way, you, you need to have a diverse portfolio. And the idea that I've really, um, Anderson Cashmore, the company that I run, is, is to give investors a choice. So in Australia, you're not going to buy much 
under 500,000, you need half a mil really to sort of get into the market. You need to have a diverse portfolio of capital growth properties and properties that are also giving you um, some kind of balance, you know, positive rental income as well. And so that's really what I concentrate on with the buyers that come to me and the portfolios that they bring to me so that they can actually build a successful real estate portfolio and speculate on the housing cycle. Because as much as, as much as I, I despise how, what it does to the economy, ultimately nothing is going to change in short term. Sure. And so, yeah, so the, the, what I wanted to do with buyers was really give them the choice. It's quite hard to find a positive yielding property in Australia as it is in some other countries. It's very, very easy to do in America. And there's a lot of opportunities in America. It's a risk if you don't... That question in terms yeah. of how much diversification should should you actually have in your portfolio and should strategically you be looking offshore for, for investment opportunities? It absolutely depends and varies with, with each buyer because obviously you're at different ages. And so when you go in for a young buyer, you really need to get that capital growth to build your wealth. Capital growth will build wealth. You'll get more, you know, your capital growth will give you, some of the properties that I've been buying in Australia, you know, they've been, you know, you buy a block of land for around 500,000 and a couple of years later, it's worth over 700,000. So you can earn significant amount of money um, if you buy a good property that's going to give you capital growth. And obviously then you can pull out the equity and you then leverage that into something else. But to have those income-generating properties that aren't going to go down in price is also important and also important for people that are at a later stage of life and that need some income coming in and that can't just negatively gear their properties. And obviously, it, it also depends on what you earn. So with each buyer, it's very different. And that requires sitting down and, and focusing on developing a strategy a strategy to build wealth from property, and, and that's really what we, we focus in, on doing at Anderson Cashmore and, and assisting buyers, buyers with there. But I'm absolutely for diversification across a range of markets. I think that we're now in an age where we shouldn't be limiting ourselves to just buying in the area that we live because we're familiar with it, but using the expertise of people that have got expertise in international markets, that are familiar with international markets, where there's opportunities that you might be able to get there that you can't get here. So, for example, in America, you don't need half a million to go and buy. You can go and buy a property that will not only give you some capital growth, not as much as you get in Australia. It's very hard to beat Australia and, and <laughs> Israel. Conversely, also gives very similar capital growth to Australia, but it's very hard to beat those markets. But you will get capital growth, and you'll also get positive rental income. So your rental income will be, will be covering your, your loan payments depending on whether you've taken out a loan or whether you've bought it in cash, you know, and there's different options that you've got over there. But there's very, very few markets in the world that actually offer that, and America has such a set cycle, and we've got around 10 years of this cycle to go, and there's unbelievable opportunities out there for investors. There's always risks to it, and the, there's risks wherever you buy, but the idea is to lower those risks and to broaden your horizon and once you start investing in a different place, your confidence grows and that encourages you to um, purchase more accommodation there and, and you'll see that it works as quite a successful strategy. So that that's really what I advise buyers to do is not necessarily to, you know, invest just about just around where they live, but to look at diversification and really just think about it with an investment mindset and not an emotional mindset. Sure. And let's just look at the numbers and what, what we can get. And as long as we price in all the risks and we, you know, we, we provide as much knowledge as we can, 
then it's, most of the time it, it's extremely successful for investors. So Catherine, weighing up the, the emotional decision and the strategic decision and you know, incorporating a, a plan to move forward, how can, how can listeners perhaps find out more about what it is that, that you do and uh, how can they get in touch to have that kind of conversation with you? Yeah, they're welcome to call me. All my contact details are on um, AndersonCashmore.com. Sure, we'll so if you just some, uh, if you, links up on the show. Yeah, if you just click on that. And, and also to your business partner, Philip, for, for his book, the, the Housing Cycle. That sounds like a good one. It's a great book to read. And if you read that book, you will know more about economics and the housing cycle than just about 99% of the population. There's so few people that actually look into it and, uh, and understand how it works. And understanding how it works is actually understanding how you also stop it, which is why you'll you'll often find policymakers are reluctant to to accept that it's such a it's such a predictable and and um, you know uh, what causes it is also you know the key to what will stop it and what will stop it is never popular policies. But yes, yeah, they can the, absolutely uh, go again? on to that. Yeah. It's AndersonCashmore.com, yeah. and my contact details are there. And anybody sure. is welcome to give me a call and have a chat. Thanks. More than welcome to do that. Catherine, thank you very much for providing such an informative insight into, into where we are from a, a policy and taxation and, and a strategic perspective on, on, on property market, both domestically and internationally. That's uh, some great insights. Thank you very much for giving up your time to come onto the Investing Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening in to another episode of the Rentvesting Podcast. We'll continue bringing you the latest investment strategies and news. So stay updated by subscribing to the podcast and by utilizing the free resources at rentvesting.com.au. If you do genuinely enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating and review. Mightn't seem important. However, it helps us more than you think. Here's to your investing success. rentvesting.com.au. Rethink, reinvent, rentvest.